1: Hey, Dr. Paul Offit, P. Diddy, welcome back to the show, brother.
0: Thanks for asking me back, looking forward to it.
1: Dude, it's always fun. People were asking me, listen, Z, you, you're you always so pro-vaccine, you know, why can't you talk to or debate an anti-vaxxer on your show? And I thought, well, who's the biggest anti-vaxxer I know? Dr. Paul Offit, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm I'm starting to regret the position I took on booster dosing. Suddenly I've been embraced by anti-vaccine activists who now think I'm smart, so that can't possibly be a good thing.
1: We're in an alter. we know now that we live in the matrix, that this is happening, that Dr. Paul Offit is labeled as an anti-vaxxer. And, it- and you know, the same things actually happened to me, Paul, because I'm a little bit nuanced and I have people on that are more uh, heterodox or contrarian, depending on where you sit, a lot more people who would classically self-label as anti-vaccine actually listen to what I'm saying, which means there's a chance for influence, good and bad there. And the emails I get actually show that I think the influence is actually good. So, and, and that, that goes right into what I wanna talk about. So let's start with boosters, right? Um, t- tell me what's going on with this because I know uh, uh, you've taken some stances publicly that are um, contrary to what the public officials are, have been pushing, so, so fill me in.
0: Right. So on August 18th, President Biden stood up in front of the American public and said, as of September 20th, roughly one month later, we, the administration, will make available booster doses for everybody over 16 years of age. So we we were we held we the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, on which I'm a voting member, held a meeting roughly a month later on around September uh, 21st um, to to discuss this issue. Of the 17 voting members on that committee, all but one voted against it because there weren't data to support it. The, the reason being that, what's the goal of the vaccine? If the goal of the vaccine is to prevent severe illness, uh, meaning the kind of illness that caused you go to, to go to the doctor, go to the, go to the hospital, go to the ICU, go to the morgue, this vaccine appeared to continue to do that. It did. I mean, for actually, actually at least all the studies that had been published by the CDC showed that the vaccine protection against serious illness was holding up for both vaccine mRNA vaccines and for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for all age groups. But we were presented data from Israel the the day before it was published in a paper the day before we met that that showed clearly that if you were between 70 to 79 years of age, you benefited from a third dose in terms of protection against serious illness, fine. And so we voted that it was reasonable then to give a vaccine for people over over 65 years of age. We also had agreed previously to have the vaccine available as a three-dose product for people who are immune compromised. That all made sense. Um, Then we met again to discuss this again a second time because now Pfizer had data on booster dosing, etc. And we, again, generally voted against it. But we're willing to, to, to at least consider the fact that people over 50 who had comorbidities, typically more than one comorbidity, may also benefit, although there weren't clear data for that. So and so that's how and the ACIP the advisory committee for immunization practices also agreed with that. So then omicron hit. When omicron hit omicron was really the reason that was given for why we need a booster dose for all. Now, what's happened since then is that that, uh, a couple days ago, so this is January 24th, so a couple days ago, the CDC um, uh, put out a press release that highlighted the results of three papers. Two were in morbidity and mortality weekly report, one was in JAMA, trying to make the case that booster dosing was a value, period, including for everybody over 18 years of age. Now, what they didn't show was they didn't show any evidence that it was clear that for, say, the 18 to 49-year-old healthy person, that that third dose increased your ability to be protected against serious disease. That wasn't there. And, and similarly, the World Health Organization has made that same statement. their the, chief scientific officer, there is no evidence to date that vaccinating a healthy young person for a third dose pr- is, protects against serious illness. Now, you could argue that's not the goal. The goal is not to protect against serious illness, it's to protect against all symptomatic illness, which would make this the first mucosal vaccine in history for which we've set that kind of bar. And it's probably true. I mean, I think if you get a third dose, you will boost neutralizing antibodies, which are the mediator of of protection against mild disease, as distinct from severe illness, where the mediator is protection against this is, I'm sorry, um, memory B cells and memory T helper cells and memory cytotoxic T cells, which appear to be long lived. From everybody that's been studying this so far, that's long-lived. And consistent with that, protection against serious illness is long-lived. Well, how about mild illness? Because Omicron, what's, what's unique about Omicron is that it's not so much that it's more contagious. It's that it's immune evasive. In other words, even if you've been vaccinated, you, because the vaccine-induced immunity is somewhat off target for protection against Omicron, you can still have a mild illness. But so what? I mean, and so you have a mild illness. I mean, why is that the goal? Because if you're trying to protect against mild illness, you will boost neutralizing antibodies for a few months, and then your antibodies will come down, and then you're not protected against mild illness anymore. Is this a public health strategy that we're going to continue to boost and boost and boost? Um, it's certainly not not a global health strategy. It's not a national health strategy. I, it's, it just doesn't make sense to me, and so. And so I got hammered for the fact that there was an Atlantic article where I said that I had recommended that my son, my you know, son in his 20s, not receive a booster dose. What they failed to say is that my children never listened to me. So that <laughs> should have been part of the equation, but it wasn't. Um, so because his girlfriend said that he should get it. And so he got it. <laughs> so, you know, just, what do I matter? I'm just his father. Uh- I I love that your son actually got boosted because his girlfriend said
1: so and his dad is like a world-renowned vaccine. This is classic. Both of Mm -hmm. my daughters are like, daddy, should I get boosted? And I'm like, well, daddy doesn't think so because of the severe disease argument you made. And uh, and I'm a little bit oppositional defiant too because it's like, well, come on, dude, if they're gonna mandate my kids get a, a booster, I'm just not gonna do it. So there's a bit of that. But the truth is, again, looking straight at the science, when CDC... when when the news reported what CDC had said about their newest data, the news reported it, more mainstream media was saying, CDC shows efficacy of boosters with Omicron. And I thought, well, okay. Then I looked at the study and I'm like, wait, where's the data on prevention of severe disease in young people? It's not there. So again, to unpack what you're saying further, the question is, do we want a transient, maybe what, 10 weeks before the neutralizing antibodies wane? How, how long do you think it is after the booster?
0: About three to four, months.
1: Three, or four months.
0: months. three to four months. Three to four months. I would have been fine if they'd said that that, that a permissive recommendation, that it, it should be considered. Because some people may say, look, I don't want to get a mild infection. I think with a mild infection, maybe I would go on to develop long COVID. So, so give me the option. Okay, and that's fine. But the minute they said it was recommended, now they say it's recommended for everybody over 12. That's when the mandates came in. And so, so I've been getting a lot of emails from people and letters from like a place like Stanford and, and Penn and, and Cornell, where they're mandating it. My future son-in-law, my, my daughter's uh, fiance, you know, goes to Cornell. He can't get back on campus. This young boy can't man, Can't get back on campus until he's, he gets his third dose. That's not fair. That's not fair. Give him the option because there's no data suggesting that he's going to be more protected against severe illness. That he may get a have a mild illness, you know, be protected against a mild illness for a few months, and and that should be his option. And so I, who as you know, am a big fan of mandates as a general <laughs> am not a fan of this. And I, I just think this is where it crosses the line. And you know, it could get you into trouble. Uh, you know, it's we certainly know that myocarditis is a rare generally rare phenomena. It depends on what age slice you're looking at. But, you know, say between 16 and, and 30 years of age and the 1 in 20,000 range. But if you look at the 16 to 17 year old, it's, it's, it's higher than that. Um, generally transient, self-resolving, benign. But, you know, we shouldn't claim to know everything about that yet. I mean, it may be that there's a spectrum of illness that we don't know about yet. And so get vaccinated. People should be vaccinated. But that's that third dose without any clear evidence of a dramatic benefit, then I think we, we shouldn't do that.
1: And the, the thing about the third dose too, there's, there's so much in just in this topic, right, Paul? Because you have the question that say WHO and EMA, the European Medicines Agency raised where they vaguely said this in a press release, you know, we're concerned about how many boosters you're going to be giving. Is that going to actually cause a weakened immune response in the future? Can you speak to that? Like, what do, what do they mean by that?
0: Right. So what you're seeing, at least with the fourth dose in Israel, is that while you get a boost, it's not what the boost was after the third dose. So it's the law of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. So, so you're you know, just seeing a lesser response, lesser response. There's always the concern about so-called original antigenic sin, where you sort of lock somebody into to this response, so that when you give them, when you need a variant-specific vaccine, that you've locked them in too much to this response, which, which we see, for example, with the HPV vaccine. So when the HPV vaccine the first one had you know, four serotypes, the second one had nine serotypes. When you gave the, the HPV-9 to people who had already had HPV-4, they responded much better to those for other four serotypes than they did to those other five, as compared to people who'd never gotten HPV-4. That's original antigenic sin. And so you, you, you did worry about, I don't see any evidence for that. So that's good. But can I just say one other thing that here's the part that's most upsetting for me about this. I mean, I was on the advisory committee for immunization practices in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, I was just a guy who worked in a lab. I mean, I spent a lot of time in a windowless concrete block room at the Wistar Institute inoculating mice. I really didn't know anything about public health. But in any case, they brought me on as a voting member of the advisory committee for immunization practices. We were working on a rotavirus vaccine. Um, And I've loved those people. I mean, I, I thought they were dedicated. And science-driven, and, and I bonded to the to the to the CDC. Similarly, on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, I love those people, people like Marion Gruber and Phil Krauss and, and, and Hannah Al-Sawi and, and Peter Marks. I mean, I know all those people. And, and I have always found them to be really science-driven, science-dedicated. Let's stick to the science. And I just I just and I hope I'm wrong. I really do hope I'm wrong. I just feel there's a political element to this that was generated when President Biden stood up there on August 18th. And I don't know why. I, I don't understand why. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I'm just, it's the part that upsets me the most. I, I've known Tony Fauci for more than 30 years because he was head, head of NIID for, you know, for, his, for many years. And and when, when NIID, the, the rotavirus vaccine, Rota Shield, came out of NIH in the uh in the late nineteen nineties. And we were working on our vaccine at that time. So I came to know him then because Rotoshi was only on the market for about ten months and was taken off because of a severe safety issue. And he's great. I, I mean, I love all these people. So that's the part I, I'm I'm having trouble. That's the part I'm struggling with. Is that that, you know, I just feel like um I don't understand this.
1: I I um you know I'm I'm deeply sympathetic to what you're saying because I, I, I'm in this in a similar boat, right? Like these are rock stars, um, you know, the, the, and pre and listen, like, so as much as you may be criticized for your booster stance, that's actually science-based and you're asking good questions, I get criticized in the same way for even hosting people who are asking questions about, say, hey, do we know enough about myocarditis? Are we, you know, asking these policy questions? There's science questions and there's policy questions. And I think what's happened, Paul, and I've talked about this before is, it's been politicized ever since the early days, right? Ever since you know Donald Trump said, hey, hydroxychloroquine or whatever it is. And there was the concern that you and I were discussing early on, like, oh, is this vaccine gonna be politicized? Is it gonna come out before the election? It's gonna come out after the election. What's gonna, what's gonna happen? And the tribes sort of fractured. They've already been split. And now what's happened is we've taken science, which used to be a process and a purity and, a, and, a, and an expression of, of, of uh, a way of trying to find truth in the world, and we have filtered it through our own tribal biases. And then what happens is you get stuff like this, where it's like, well, let's just mandate boosters for every college kid. And so what, what does that do too, apart from the science? it creates a fractured tribalism within even the college students. So I get the messages, I'm sure you do too, from kids who are like, dude, I pay all this tuition. I'm 20, 20 years old, no other problems. I got. I did everything they told me. I masked, I got the two doses. Now they wanna mandate a third dose for me. I'm a male. I am a little concerned about myocarditis just because I'm so low risk. I've even had COVID before. Now they want me to have COVID, two vaccines, and a booster, or I get expelled. So they're starting to actually radicalize. So they're listening to more like uh, you know more outlandish claims because they want the validation of what they feel intuitively this doesn't make sense. So we're in a very tough position and you as a communicator who've written books on medical communication understand this better than anybody. It's just it, what's going to happen to childhood vaccine mandates now? Like what's going to ha- you know are we really damaging public health for a generation?
0: I'm just curious what you think i think that's already happened i mean you're already seeing i think that the how can i say that? I, th- I think the anti-vaccine movement never had a, a particular politics i mean i, I would argue it was born in the early 1980s with the false concern as it turns out that the pertussis or whooping cough vaccine caused permanent brain damage that wasn't true but that's really how they were born and and at the time, you know, it was, it was on the left, it was a, you know, sort of um, don't inject me with anything that has a chemical name. I don't want to be, here. you know, have like chemical, you know, additives or manufacturing residuals or adjuvants. I just, all things natural. Um, although I'm, I still don't understand why the word natural has such cachet. But in any case, those natural infections are not a good thing. But, and then on the right, it was, it was what you're saying, kind of government off my back. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to raise my family. And it's like all that now. I mean, you take somebody like RFK Jr., who's a, a, a vigorous anti-vaccine activist, and, and it certainly comes from a Democratic family, suddenly was trying to align himself with Donald Trump. And there he is at that Washington, D.C. rally the other day with Robert Malone and others, you know, making the case that you shouldn't get vaccinated. It's almost entirely now part of the culture wars. And that, that part, their part of the culture war is, is is this libertarian notion of government off my back. Um, you know, and so and so during the January sixth insurrection, you see, you know, there's Del Bigtree speaking a few hundred yards from where Donald Trump was speaking. Um, these people are classically Democrats, by the way, but yeah. somehow they link themselves to the right here because it's it's a zeitgeist.
1: It's it's a seismic shift in this because I agree with you. You know, it it had been. Uh, so I'll, I'll say one other thing about this before we go on to things people actually really are interested in on the science of this. But there's a moral matrix issue that Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist has written about where we have these moral taste buds. And typically the left has valued two of them in particular, fairness versus cheating and care versus harm as morality compasses. So that's why uh, liberals typically will get behind a vaccine mandate or something like that if if they think it's gonna save people's lives and so on. Whereas conservatives value those, but they also throw in three others in equal measure, liberty versus oppression, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, and another one, sanctity versus degradation. So this idea of like these sort of holy things or sacred things that you don't degrade, right? Whether it's the flag or whether it's religion or the Bible. But what's happened since COVID is, the liberal side has gotten more of the sanctity versus degradation and loyalty versus betrayal stuff. So now for liberals, it is a question of, have you had the holy baptism of the vaccines? And if you haven't, or if you don't mask, you're unclean. So there's a, a purity virtue part of it. And the other side, the conservatives have a more liberty versus oppression. You can't tell me what to do. And their purity is don't inject me with MRNA designed by pharmaceuticals and government. So it's fascinating to see how this now plays out in, in the tribes that have emerged. And sort of standing at the center and looking at all this, it's, it's disheartening because the question is, how do we start to unwind it? And that, that's also why, Paul, you get a lot of crap from your own tribe for speaking like this because it is a disloyalty issue, right? You're not in lockstep with whatever the, the thing is.
0: No, I agree. And, and if I could just add one other sort of scientific point before we move on. The the thinking at, at the time when we were we were all discussing, I, I, I've spoken with Dr. Fauci about this on the phone, as well as people like Stan Plotkin, who is another hero of mine, who's kind of the, the author, the, the editor, senior editor of the book Plotkin's Vaccines. I mean, he's the inventor of one vaccine, two vaccines, and has contributed to many others. So these are the stars to me. And, and their, their argument initially made a lot of sense, which is that if you look at vaccines like the whole inactivated viral vaccines like the polio vaccine or the hepatitis A vaccine, or you look at purified protein vaccines vaccines like, say, the hepatitis B vaccine or HPV vaccine, you do need a period of time between, dose, uh, between doses, whether it's dose one and two or dose two and three, where you, you have about four to six months, so you can have high frequencies of memory cells, which are responsible for protection against serious disease. Makes sense. The question is, is that also true for this vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, about which we know little? I mean, we we this is our first mRNA vaccine. And what you're seeing, which completely surprises me, is that with two doses given close together, you know, Three or four weeks apart, you have these high frequencies of memory B cells, which are critical, and memory T helper and cytotoxic T cells, which are also critical. Um, a year later, uh, I mean, who would have predicted that? And maybe in, in the in the end, and we're we'll, we're going to learn about this in time that the the mRNA vaccines are more like the whole the live attenuated viral vaccines because like the like those vaccines, the mRNA vaccine is is a gene that goes into your cell. It's then translated into a protein, which is what happens when you get a live attenuated viral vaccine, like measles or mumps or German measles or chickenpox. And so maybe it's more like that. We're we really even one dose, arguably, can induce high frequencies of memory cells. So maybe that's what this is like we'll learn over time and I think maybe it may be that over time 2 years 3 years from now we're going to find out that we really should have had that that booster interval you know that 4 to 6 month interval to allow us to develop that those memories so, but that's not true yet there's no evidence for that yet and so I just feel we should at the moment still be evidence-based and it's okay for the the cdc to say look let's do it this way for now and then when they they find that there's not evidence for that to just back off and say okay let's just make this more of a permissive recommendation for the for the less than 50 year old you know who doesn't have a comorbidity let's do it that way meaning let's let young healthy people make that choice or let their parents make that choice but we sort of got stuck on
1: this. This is key that's actually a key scientific point right that that these mRNA vaccines may well they're they're different in the sense that they maybe they behave like a live virus infection like you said the attenuated virus doesn't cause disease but causes very robust long-term memory b and t cell immunity and cuz there's a lot of discussion about should the first doses have been spaced out further was it so close for expediency. But you're saying when you actually measure the B and T cell uh, memory response, it's actually quite good, like surprisingly good. So that's, that's important. And, and again, it relates to booster. Is it a booster, that third dose, or is it a third dose? Is it something that's necessary to create durable, long-lasting immunity against severe disease? Like you would imagine with a, a purified, uh, you know, a, a, a inactivated viral particle or something like that? Um, is that, is that. Am I understanding correctly what you're saying? Exactly yeah. Right. So so relating to that and I love what you said about it a permissive recommendation. So then you empower people to make the decision. They're empowered instead of getting this psychological reactance to saying you're telling me what to do and it doesn't I'm not entirely convinced it's correct. L- let me ask a question then. We talked about 50 and over with comorbidities. You said there's not great data for it, but we are recommending that 65 and older for sure, people with immunocompromise for sure three doses. What about pregnant women? because I get tons of messages from pregnant women who, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to say pregnant people now, Paul. So pregnant women, who it's very hard to decondition me, um, who are asking, well, I've had two doses. Maybe I've been infected also or not. How are you thinking about a booster in pregnant women?
0: Well, so, so what do we know? We, we know that if you're pregnant and you're infected with SARS-CoV-2, that you have a two and a half to threefold increased risk of being hospitalized or go to the ICU or require mechanical ventilation and about a one and a half fold increased risk of dying as compared to women of the same age who aren't pregnant. Therefore, pregnant women need to get a vaccine. So, so if two doses of vaccine pre- prevents serious illness, which appears to be true, two doses appears to be true in that it protects you against serious illness, and that's what we're trying to protect against. I don't see the compelling need for a booster dose there either. I mean, and, and there are no data to suggest that that third dose then protects that woman from the serious diseases that I was just talking about. Now, it may be that those de- those data will be generated, um, but until they are generated, I think we just need to stand back and And do what we're doing which is have a two-dose recommendation for pregnant women but this ship has sailed i I just feel like i mean i can be really upset about this and write op-eds about this which i'll do and and you know talk about this on shows like this but I i just feel that there's no coming back from this i think this is what we've done
1: you know, the, and the thing is, okay, I would be okay with that if it weren't for mandates and boosters, because then you're really compelling. And listen, you only have so much policy juice to compel stuff for public health. Why, why do that when you're crea- gonna create so much reactance? But yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with you. Um, so that's interesting. And, and the safety of the vaccine in pregnancy, is there anything new to speak to that? Because I get a lot of questions still about that, even though we've talked about it, anything new on that front?
0: No, just to continue data that, that if you um, get a vaccine during pregnancy, and you compare those those that group to people who are pregnant that didn't get a vaccine. There is no difference in terms of outcome of the pregnancy, in terms of outcome of the, the neonate. So it's it, the only difference is that you protected that pregnant woman from having severe illness. So it's it's uh, no, it's all good. Data I- continue to be continues to come
1: back good. Now that and that dovetails into another question that comes up a lot. So people talk about VAERS a lot, this sort of reporting database. But what about the other mechanisms for determining vaccine safety in near real time, you know, the vaccine safety data link, Prism, those kind of things. Can you speak to those because people very much obsess over VAERS and we know VAERS is a hypothesis generator. So people submit to VAERS, it could be you know, a lot of times there's confuse, confusing, correlating. In other words, you get a vaccine and then a bad thing happens that might have happened, likely would have happened anyways. But there's correlation, but people assume causation. They say, well, the vaccine then caused this old person to die of a heart attack, whereas in fact they were going to die of a heart attack anyways. Can you speak to the other mechanisms of of monitoring that would help people understand how these things are studied?
0: Yeah, you know something, I can understand how people would think that, 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 you know, that, that if one event followed another, that it was caused by the other, because of the name. Vaccine Adverse Events <laughs> Reporting System. I mean, it should be called SVERS, Suspected Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, because you don't know. I mean, this is, as you said, a hypothesis-generating mechanism at best, and at worst, it's this very noisy mechanism that causes people like Tucker Carlson to go in there and say, you know, last May, 3,300 people have died from, from a vaccine, or that, that's what they were saying at this, at this rally in Washington, D.C. the other day. So yeah, so the good news is the only way to really know whether something is causing something else is to have control groups. That's really what scientific studies are at all levels. It's the study of control. So that you can, the groups like the vaccine safe data link, they like the prism system, which is run PRISM not P-R-I-S-O-N, which is run by the FDA, and and V-Safe, which is run by the CDC, are ways to look to compare groups, groups who did or didn't get a vaccine so you can see whether or not this was a problem. I mean, VAERS, at its best, will re- raise the hypothesis. So for example, those initial cases of myocarditis were reported to VAERS. And, that, and so now you've raised the hypothesis. So now you have to look at people who did or didn't get the vaccine, you know, males versus females, you know, what age one age versus another age to see, is there a risk? And you see that the risk was greater, not after dose, so much after dose one, but after dose two, the risk was was greater in males, the risk was greater within four days, and 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 the risk was greater in younger people, younger males. So the, that's, that's how you could get all that information. But VAERS is at Best the hypothesis generating mechanism. And at worst, people think, well, if it's reported to various, it must really happen. But remember, you can fill out that one-page form on, on uh, online and say that my child got a vaccine and turned it into the incredible Hulk, and that'll still end up in the virus system. There's no screening. It's incredibly noisy.
1: Right, which by the way is a desirable outcome of any vaccine. Exactly right. Hulkogenesis, Paul, maybe we could speak to that because you know when you were working on the rota, rotavirus vaccine, I know Hulkogenesis was a desired outcome. You were striving towards the asymptote of incredulous. By, by the way, did I ever tell you my idea for a um, science skeptic who, whenever you make him, whenever you make him question data, he turns into the incredulous Hulk. So, you know, that <laughs> <laughs> he gets green and very, he just drills right into the data. Anyways, all that aside, um, the, the interesting thing about those those vaccine monitoring programs is the control group like you said so you may take like a kaiser system that has very good electronic health records very integrated and they can actually identify controls and people who've gotten vaccine and make uh and drill down into that and that's kind of what you're pointing at in terms of being able to do that yeah
0: yeah and that's the advantage of having those integrated health systems you can see who got a vaccine and who didn't you can do it do it in you know real time so so-called you know sort of real-time cycle analysis and figure it out. So that's the advantage. When vaccines first roll out, you have those systems, you can very quickly tell whether there's a problem. And I wish the same thing existed on the drug side, doesn't
1: Oh, Oh my gosh, It would uh, pro- we, we, we would find uh, a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of stuff. I mean, you've written books on this, right? About <laughs> the kind of, uh, things that happen and 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 you know somebody somebody I have on the show a lot, and we do a joint podcast together who's who I think is labeled as a contrarian on the whole vaccine for kids thing right because he's concerned about myocarditis, Dr. Vinay Prasad, but his whole career has been spent looking at this issue like what 's safe, what 's not, how do you look at trials, how do you look at pharma bias and things like that so that that's kind of where he comes from, and I could see now in our tribalized world and you know we we just get so polarized um kind of relating. To this, this question of uh, pharmaceutical companies kind of dictating public health. So, you know, especially in the in the in the booster scenario, it's kind of like Alex Borla, Borla gets up there and he's like, "I think we should have a booster for everyone." And and I, I don't know what kind of accent that was. It's not Borla's accent, but the idea that they are saying, okay, we are going to do a variant specific booster. It's going to be needed every year. We're going to combine it with a flu vaccine. So we're just going to assume it's going to be annual. Like, what do you think about that? It seems like they're in the public health business now.
0: That's right. They're acting like public health agencies. I mean, the two specific examples are exactly right. So I think the most recent thing that uh, that Albert Bourla said was he said, I don't think we're going to need boosters. I think we're just going to need a yearly vaccine. <laughs> Basically, I mean, that, so so you get a yearly flu vaccine. You do that because flu virus mutates enough from one year to the next that, that natural infection or immunization the year, that, that previous year doesn't protect you against severe disease, hence the need for a yearly flu vaccine. Um, on the other hand coronaviruses also mutate they do and this particular virus omicron has really mutated i mean we've gone from like whatever six to eight mutations in the critical so-called receptor binding domain with delta to like 32 mutations in in omicron that's like in flu world in terms of how quickly you've developed this this uh this particular uh variant i mean that's that's your you're you're drifting in some ways in the same way the flu drifts, but what you can say, at least so far, is that those regions, those immunological regions, so called epitopes that are recognized by memory B cells, memory T helper cells, memory cytotoxic T cells are still relatively conserved. I mean, I think what's the amazing thing is, remember the vaccine, the vaccines that were made, all the vaccines that have been made. Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson Johnson, AstraZeneca, whatever, Sinopharm, were all made against that original Wu 2020 strain, the so-called ancestral strain. Nonetheless, for the four variants that have come into this country, you know, the, the first one, D614G, which never got a Greek letter designation, followed by Alpha, followed by Delta, fo- followed by Omicron. Still, the, that region is concerned, so protection against serious disease is conserved. Now, it may be that it, there will be a variant, and it's possible, that is now resistant to immunity in terms of protection against serious illness. That's possible. And, and so how do you define that? And we need to define it. So, so for example, the Provincetown outbreak in, in last July, um, there were 346 uh, men who were vaccinated during this July 4th celebration, who despite being vaccinated got COVID. Uh, four of them are hospitalized. The hospitalization rate of 1.2%. That's good. That's a vaccine that's working well. But what if it gets to 5%, 10%, 20%? W- what is that level at which point you say you're no longer protected against serious illness? That's got to come from the CDC. You want to hear that from the CDC. When do we cross the line to say we need a variant-specific vaccine as compared to having Albert Boyler or CEOs of other, other pharmaceutical companies saying, okay, we made it. We're <laughs> to say, you know, we we've now linked it to the flu vaccine so we can have a yearly vaccine you know it's it's just uh it's going i I really again as fantasies could come true i would really love to see um rochelle walensky who's great Uh, amazing sort of hiv researcher and educator and clinician i love rochelle i mean not in love with Rochelle Walensky, but I love <laughs> Rachelle Walensky, and and you know she's uh, what I'd like to see her do is is do what uh, what Richard Besser did in two thousand nine with the swine flu pandemic. Get out there every other day or so, tell us where we are, answer questions from the from the media who in many ways represent the public, and and you know and just constantly tell us where we are in information, answer those questions because she's great at it. I think she's great at it. I just uh, but she doesn't get to do as much of the talking. I feel like she's sort of in the shadows in some ways of the administration and. And um, NIH, but would love to hear her more of the talking.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I wonder how much CDC as an entity itself is so bureaucratic that whether Rochelle wants to do something or not, it's not, you know, again, these big bureaucratic organizations are hard to move around, uh, especially if you don't have deep experience in moving them around. In other words, be a bureaucratic functionary all your life, which
0: she's not. Um, no, but again, I, that's. I it. I, I it. So I think it's, it's doable. And yeah. I, I think. I don't know. I, I guess during the Trump administration, as you said, what, what I saw was, you know, you could see the FDA was had their arm twisted in many ways, whether it was hydroxychloroquine or convalescent plasma, where, you know, those were mistakes. I mean quickly there was an EUA and then the EUAs were taken away. Um, emergency use authorizations were take, taken away. And I thought when we, with the Biden administration, that would all go away, that we wouldn't feel any sort of political pressure on decisions that were made by the CDC or the FDA. But And I hope I'm wrong, but I just feel like there is somewhat of that pressure. And so I hope I'm wrong, because the, these, are, these are institutions we have to trust. I mean, if you get to the point where you don't trust the FDA or you don't trust the CDC in this country, we're in trouble.
1: I, I, I hear lots of frontline physicians saying, "I don't trust the FDA and I don't trust the CDC," and I've never heard that previous to this. I mean, it, it really is going to take a lot of uh, transparency to unwind this. And I, from where I sit, Paul, it looks it looks very similar, right? Like what, what's it feels political on all sides, and I think um, we really need to to keep talking about that because there needs to be a degree of transparency that we that I don't know that we've seen um and and so you mentioned the, the swine flu pandemic of 2009 so draw some more parallels there like in terms of messaging and in terms of what we're doing to kind of manage it like because well, i remember that as a hospitalist it was Every, I mean, the winter we got crushed. It was actually, it was the trigger that created ZDog MD. if I'm being totally honest, because I was so destroyed that winter with my team. I remember that I was like, I need to, a place to vent. And I started making videos, putting them on YouTube. It was swine flu that triggered that. So I'm curious your thoughts.
0: We actually did fairly well with swine flu. I mean, the, the, um, we made a vaccine in advance of the virus's entrance into this country. If I told you that only about 12,500 people in this country died from that virus, from that particular strain, um, that's probably a much lower number than we would have guessed. But yeah, so we actually you. did fairly well. But, but what I mean, Dr. Richard Besser, who now is at uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, but, you know, it, it's an uh, ID guy uh Peds id guy who um who who was just really good i thought it He he's just it was a very good master a, a, about the, the stuff as dr Wolinsky can be i mean she she is clearly that person when i remember reading that she was like you get the sense she was being taken to the woodshed you know that there were democratic that there was democratic uh communications people who were meeting with her i didn't think she needed that i mean i think she can do it or just let her do it yeah. she she's Right at it, (laughs) just let her do it. Let her say what she thinks.
1: Yeah, boy, Uh, we shouldn't really let scientists say what they think, Paul, because otherwise (laughs) who will censor them? Um, So, (laughs) so kind of related to this, so what would determine then a yearly vaccine? We would really, it would have to be something like influenza where it actually escapes our ability to prevent severe disease, right?
0: right that the virus mutates so much from one season to the next that that immunization or natural infection doesn't protect you against um against severe disease the following year but you're not trying to prevent mild illness you're not Mm -hmm. it's too hard to do that and it's based on neutralizing antibodies neutralizing antibodies face you're talking about frequent boosters if you're trying to do that that doesn't make sense so let's focus on the old and the infirm and people who are immune compromised and people who have multiple comorbidities focus on them and more importantly, focus on the unvaccinated, because that's what's the most amazing part of this virus is you you probably have 90% population immunity already from national infection or immunization. It's still, you know, this virus has found those people and who are unvaccinated and sent them to the hospital and the ICU and the morgue. Virtually everybody we see in our hospital is unvaccinated.
1: Yeah, and and that's a common thread, but here, so here's a question, Paul, how much of those, Severe that severe disease we're seeing in hospital in the unvaccinated, do we think is actually Omicron and how much of that is residual Delta?
0: I think I, now it's Omicron. I, I think you're right. I think initially it was residual Delta, but I think now you're starting to see almost all over. I mean, Omicron is like 95% of the infections out there now. Now it is, so yeah. I think now it is, but you're right. I think initially it was, it was residual Delta. I think now you're just, I mean, the, the, the Omicron thing is, I think one thing I wish uh, Dr. Fauci could have said a little differently was when he said, you know, Omicron may be that live sort of attenuated viral vaccine we're all looking for. I think he didn't say the word attenuated. This is that live viral vaccine we've all been hoping for. But, you know, this is not an attenuated virus. There's a difference between uh, less virulent and avirulent. This virus is not avirulent. It can certainly cause you to suffer and die. So the notion of sort of well, I'm just going to go to like an Omicron party, you know, let me just go get this, get my cold, get it over with. Bad idea. I'll give you one story. This is uh, perfect. Actually, when, when in 2000, when we started our Vaccine Education Center, we made a video, actually, of um, sort of me talking to parents and just having them ask their questions about what they were worried about with regard to vaccines. We hired a company in the city of Philadelphia named Shooters was kind of an odd name, but um, so the cameraman who was was shooting on that, he told us a story about how his sister had taken her son to a chicken pox party. You know, because uh, it, it's true that if you get chicken pox as an adult, you're about 10 to, times more likely to develop pneumonia, 10 times more likely to be hospitalized. So it's actually better to get chicken pox as a child. Um, and so the child went to a chicken pox party, got chicken pox and died of hemorrhagic mm-hmm. chickenpox. Now this was 2000, this was five years after the development of a chickenpox vaccine. Um, you know, the goal of the vaccine is to induce the immunity from that, that you get from natural infection without paying the price of natural infection. And that's what this child paid. And uh, we actually asked the, this uh, this cameraman whether he would be willing to ask his sister whether she'd be willing to tell that story on camera, but not surprising she wasn't and who could blame her? I mean, it's yeah. just uh, such a hard story.
1: It's it's And there's a stigmatization too with, um actually even getting COVID among certain circles, right? So it's as if you're in the very hardcore look, I've been masking, I triple vaxxed and all that, and then I still got infected with Omicron. If, there used to be a shame component, like, oh, somehow I'm less than perfect, or I've, I've, I've you know, let the tribe down. Whereas Omicron is so infectious that even if you've been vaccinated, like you said, those neutralizing antibodies, that's one thing, but the, you're just not gonna get, your chances of getting severely ill are vastly reduced. And that's the idea. So. I don't think we should shame people for getting accidentally infected. I think we should discourage going out to the, by the way, when you said Omicron party, it just sounds like you're rushing some kind of Greek fraternity and, you know, man, those Omicron (laughs) parties are the best. They have the best kegs, like (laughs) pi, alpha, beta, gamma. But But the idea too that, that um, natural immunity, because this is something that's become a bugaboo. And and you've said, like, dude, nature has a really good PR agent. Like, it just sounds cool. Like, natural just sounds better. And you could just say recovered immunity. More data coming out still kind of saying, well, it's actually pretty good, right? If you've been- As you would
0: expect it's true for every other virus i mean with the arguably the exception of flu i mean if you've gotten measles you know there's no reason for you to get a measles vaccine or mumps or germ or rubella or chickenpox i mean you you've been vaccinated essentially um, but here and i think it was probably more bureaucratic than anything else when you it is not at all surprising that if you're naturally infected that you will develop high frequencies of memory b and t cells which should protect you against serious illness and i think that that is what the cdc now has shown and and i can tell you this I think i don't think this was a confidential meeting hopefully it wasn't um but the <laughs> well, I was asked um along with uh, three other people to advise the um the administration on whether or not natural infection should count as a vaccine um i think that the, the you just have to to, uh, to say how are you going to show that you were naturally infected so I think pcr would not be the way I would go i would show that you have antibodies say to viral nuclear protein just that because that way you know that you've been naturally infected because that's not good not something you would get from a vaccine. So you could do that, for example. So bureaucratically, that's tough. I, I understand that. But but I, we, the four of us were asked to comment on, did we think natural infection basis should count in situations where the vaccine is mandated? And I was one of the two people that said yes. The other two people said no. But what was funny about that meeting, so it was uh, Vivek Murthy, you know, who's the head of, who's the U.S. Surgeon General. He's a friend, yeah. You know, have yeah, from cdc and and uh and francis collins we have still head of nih and tony Fountry. so so vivek who's a very sweet and kind man started off saying let's go around and just introduce ourselves first yeah you know, so, so francis collins goes francis collins nih and you know rochelle goes rochelle walensky cdc it's like you know we're not asking you to introduce yourselves we know who you are it's like i'm i'm sorry tony what was that last name again i, I didn't catch that <laughs> It's <laughs> we, it's the
1: four of us who knows. So I've known Vivek for quite a few years now. He's a, like you said, he's just the sweetest, lovely, just wonderful guy. I could totally see that happening. And him being earnest about it, being like, no, please, Tony, say your last mm-hmm. name. Let's just make sure we're all on the same footing. Um, so what's interesting in that, Paul, is that you were advocating as natural immunity counting. And I'll, I'll say this, this one element has given so much power to people who would advocate against vaccines meaning um, the Dell big trees and the robert f kennedys you know they don't even acknowledge natural natural na- natural immunity and i think the reason it gives them power is that most people and most scientists with common sense like you would say no but it actually does count right and when you're thinking about a mandate for a kid who's already had you know two vaccines and now they're mandating a booster but they've gotten omicron it's like Uh, doesn't Omicron count as the booster? It's not like they intentionally got it, but shouldn't it count? And isn't there an, you know, even if it's the honor, here's a clear, okay, here's a, and you can cut me off at any time with anything you wanna interject here, but here's a question, like, let's say they lie. Okay, I didn't, okay, so I had Omicron and, you know, the honor system failed, but they had two doses of the other vaccine and you have it documented. Who does it harm if they've lied about that like, how much is the effect on transmission? What's the community effect of this vaccine versus not filling up the hospital with severe disease versus the individual effect? And and because that that affects how we design policy, because policy should be the good of the many, right?
0: Yeah. So I, th- I think that one of the problems we we struggle with with this uh, virus is is the testing. I mean, you have. Antigen t- detection testing, which detects viral protein, which is at least closer to infectious virus. And then you have PCR, which detects viral genome. Um, if you look at what, you, what you're not testing is what you really care about, which is infectious virus titer. IVT. That's what you really care about. You'd like to get a swab, see how many infectious virus particles as detected by either plaquing or focus forming assays, whatever study you want to do. Those are commercial, those are not commercially available tests. That's what you really care about. So if you look, for example, this is just a recent study of people, say, who, who gotten vaccinated, two doses of an mRNA vaccine and then had mild illness and compare them to people who had, uh, who were not vaccinated, but had a mild illness. And then you look at PCR you find that there's no difference. Even if you look at cycle times, which is a way of determining presumably the quantity of viral RNA, right? The lower the cycle time, the more viral RNA, that that too would presumably correlate with infectious virus, but it doesn't. So if, you, if you're if given uh, two doses of vaccine and you get a mild illness, you shed much less virus for a much shorter period of time. So that's what you're, you know, your immune system didn't evolve to, to, to make your PCR response negative. That's not what it did. So <laughs> this is, is uh, that that's an important observation it's i i think the testing has been especially pcr has really been hard for people i mean you can you typically you shed infectious virus for about seven days eight days you can be pcr positive for three months it's just you know it's not it's not it's too sensitive that uh that's something that has been
1: brought up by somebody who we should talk about actually uh robert malone so this this is a, a gentleman, a scientist uh, who we've become familiar with since the pandemic as a voice saying, "Listen, I invented the mRNA technology that is used in these vaccines. Therefore, I'm going to have a particular level of credibility to then say these are all the things that are dangerous about this vaccine and why you shouldn't get them." So, first of all, maybe just unpack this. Like, who who who? What did he do? And did he invent this vaccine? Because you co-developed the rotavirus vaccine with a team of people, you talked about it before. So you, I think of anyone that I could ask, has the most experience in this space to kind of comment on this.
0: Right, so what he did, um, he's an MD, I think, at, at North, from Northwestern, He's I think he's a Bachelor of Science from, from his biochemistry work at one of the University of California schools. So what he did like in 89 and 90 is he published papers showing that if he took messenger RNA and put it in a lipid droplet and then in vitro, meaning in, in a laboratory flask using monkey, using mouse cells, that he could get that, that mRNA into the cell and that it would express a protein. And I think the original paper was like luciferase, which is an enzyme that's very easy to tell because it's sort of when you add a substrate, the cell lights up. Um, that's it. That's what he did. Now, you can argue he was, if not the first, certainly one of the first to show that you could take mRNA, exogenous meaning from outside the cell, put it inside a cell, and then have it, have it be translated through the ribosomal system into a protein. So that, that's an important observation. But to claim that he, in any sense, was the inventor of this technology, he, he, there's three things he didn't do. First and most importantly, that, that's not the right lipid particle. Uh, the the lipid nanoparticle that you use, that you can use, say, in a cell in a laboratory, is very different than something you inject into a muscle. That had to be completely reformulated. Two, messenger RNA is is an adjuvant. I mean, messenger RNA has was used in the early days of uh, as a in rabies vaccines as an adjuvant, meaning it, it boosts the immune system, it, specifically the the so-called innate immune system. It stimulates toll like receptor three, it stimulates toll like receptor eight. So that can't be. You can't immunize somebody with mrna like that you have to um modulate it so modify it so that it doesn't do that to do that what you do is you use nucleoside analogs like pseudouridine which is what people like you know drew weissman did and barney graham and and and, and others and there's there's um there was another researcher actually whose name i can't remember who, who did actually the critical work on that and, and you know caitlin carrico and, and others um, that had to happen in order for this to be a vaccine. And then the third thing that had to happen is the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, I mean, can itself has so certain toxic effects on cells, but so, so you have to make it so it can't enter cells. You do that by using these uh, so-called prolines that fix it in a pre-fusion state. So it can't possibly fuse with the cell. It's locked in as a pre-fusion molecule. Those all had to happen none of which he did. What he reminds me of is is a man who won the Nobel Prize named Brooke Blumberg. And Brooke Blumberg won the Nobel Prize for for looking in the blood of people who had hepatitis B and seeing these these little particles that we now know are hepatitis B surface antigen, which forms the basis of a vaccine that's what he noticed now he didn't think it was that at first he thought it was something that was uh, sort of represented some sort of genetic phenotype in australian so it was called australian antigen then he thought it was may have been associated with with cancers which was also wrong And it was actually bill prince who i think frankly did most of the work showing that that actually was hepatitis b surface antigen. but he claims to to have been sort of like central to the development of a vaccine no no the hard part came after that and was done almost solely by Maurice Hillman when he was at Merck to, to make that a vaccine. It's not easy to do that. It's that's that's the you know the the hard part. I remember when when we you know, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital Philadelphia to create created the rotavirus vaccine. I mean, so we we made the strains that ultimately became that vaccine in our lab. But you know, it's Merck that did you know the 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 um the, doing all the original studies, phase one, phase two, phase three, doing dose ranging studies, figuring the right buffer, the right stabilizing agent, the right you know vial, you know, do real time stability studies. That was like a sixteen year, one point three billion dollar effort. That was the hard part right? I mean, there's like research, development, implementation. That's the way it works. So I remember there was an article that came out when that vaccine was finally recommended in February 2006. And it said, you know, that the research was done, the principal research was done a job and Merck, you know, sold it. no, no, no. no. Merck did a lot of other stuff before they sold it. But, you know, we never like to think our heroes come from pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: Basically, you're telling me he invented the mRNA vaccines. That's what you're saying, Paul. Am I understanding that correctly? Because that's what I'm but, pulling but, out of this.
0: But he's interesting, isn't? I mean, he's, he's to me the most interesting guy. When I, when I was on the Andrea Mitchell show on MSNBC at noon, and um, they showed this the highlight reel from like you know the that Washington DC anti-vaccine rally. There's Robert Malone speaking and talking about how dangerous vaccines are. So how do you how do you put that all together, where in on the one hand, he claims he's the inventor of a technology that he now he's saying is killing people. And I think he just feels that history is going to pass him by, that he's being ignored for this. And I think he's angry. As That would be my guess. But he, you know, he to me is Andrew Wakefield too, because he really fits the part, you know, attractive, well-spoken, is able to translate science easily, um, has a history of doing good, you know, decent scientific work early on in his career. Um, and now he's just completely turned Tables and it's it's uh, it's hard to watch because he's influential. When I give talks uh, on Zoom, always you know to parent groups that are upset, he is often the one they bring up.
1: He's very influential, which is um I you know I, I I've done a few things talking about his specific points, which we can touch on a couple of the big ones. But the, the it is interesting because what what you're doing when we're trying to figure out a motive or you know you, you get labeled as ad hominem first of all, and then the mind reading fallacy that you know we can't get in his head. But I'll just say this and. This is something I think just as an advocacy point in science communication, every single scientist is a human being, right? And which means, and you and I both know, Paul, knowing ourselves, we are flawed deeply, right? And we have our own psychological baggage. We have our own unconscious stuff that we do that we won't even know about unless we've introspected or meditated or gone to therapy or whatever. And when I see Robert Malone and when I see someone like Peter McCullough or when I see some of these other guys, I feel it energetically, almost like, oh yeah, yeah This is what it, it's <laughs> very hurt. Didn't get uh, credit for this thing. It's now huge. Now is is projecting this other way, and can come up with really smart reasons why this vaccine is toxic, all of which are wrong. And also is mixing in a lot of good skepticism. And the package itself is so compelling to parents because he looks like sexy Kenny Rogers before he got plastic surgery, um, and <laughs> you know all of that. So it, it, it's 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 difficult because I think it's incumbent on folks like you and I and others to say, okay, well, okay, let's look at this dispassionately, which is hard because I get triggered. Like I, I see a guy like that and I just, you know, I see him talk, he does his own videos. He says, listen, parents, as the inventor of mRNA technology, this spike protein is toxic. It's an irreversible medical decision that will damage your children. So before you undertake this, you know, and, and I'm like, this is criminal. And then I get angry, right? So. Maybe let's dispassionately look at a couple of his things. Again, this spike protein toxicity, he says that Merck's or um, Pfizer's spike protein, Moderna's spike protein was never tested. It is toxic, it it develops in tissues of children and adults. How how do you respond to this?
0: Never tested, I mean, (laughs) there was a, I mean, so Pfizer did a 40,000 person trial, Moderna did a 30,000 person trial. These vaccines have been, I think, I think 3.5 billion people in the world have been fully vaccinated. There's more than 9 billion doses out there. We know more about this vaccine than any vaccine in history. This is the largest mass vaccination program in history at a time when there are in place systems to figure out if there is any sort of safety issue. I mean, look, look at the original J&J thing. When, when that came out, that there was a, these these blood clots the so-called thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome the original estimate was about 1 per 500,000 people now as we're getting more and more data it's closer to sort of 1 in 200,000 people that's rare and that was picked up and immediately presented to the American public and there was a hold put on J&J's vaccine myocarditis thing also was immediately picked up and w- very quickly put out there because we wanted to know to what extent this was doing harm and so so of course we're looking at safety issues and of course we're putting it out there the notion that that you know that SARS COVID-2 spike protein is killing people would require a vast international conspiracy involving thousands and thousands of researchers and public health officials, which is, is you know, that you can get people to believe that is remarkable to me. So, well, no. So, and also the studies, by the way, that were, and this is always true, you can get anything published. There was a paper in circulation research, and this is just one of many, where They take um, hamsters and inoculate them with a pseudovirus, uh, specifically something called vesicular stomatitis virus, which is in the rabies family, into which you clone then the gene that codes for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. They inoculate it intratracheally into the windpipe at about 500,000, you know, uh, infectious particles, not infectious particles, it's replication effective, but, you know, particles, viral particles, and then shows that they're, they're, what does that mean? I mean, it's like, okay, okay, so we're not going to inoculate hamsters then anymore or, you know, intratracheally with this virus. It's like, as, as David Weiner said, who's my my one of my favorite vaccine researchers with Star, he said, mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. That's right. If you really want to know what's a problem people, put it in people. That, uh, that, 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 that yep, <laughs> that's exactly right. And you
1: know, this idea that, uh, God, he said so many things. Well, here's the best part, Paul. So I, I know, cause I know I, I can get you fired up about this just because as part of the vast global conspiracy, central to this vast global conspiracy are hospitalists. That is my specialty. So people who take care of patients in the hospitals, internists and pediatricians like myself, uh, and I'm like, guy, guy, I hate to pump the brakes on you here, but I can't even tie my laces when I'm working in the hospital. Like I can be part of some vast global conspiracy to keep patients inpatient for longer. Paul, have you ever met a hospitalist who does not wanna discharge their patient as soon as they're admitted? Like. It's just what we do, we get people out of the hospital. And, and Malone is like, well, these, these hospitals are part of the great conspiracy. It's like, okay, you're done, you're done here.
0: Now, <laughs> another no, thing is- piecework, right? I mean, you're salaried. It's not like piecework, right? You get paid per patient, right? And even if you got
1: paid per patient, you get paid more. So this is something we can say. There are financial incentives in medicine. I've complained about them forever. Fee-for-service is poisonous because it generates supply, me, generates demand. Because the more I do, the more I get paid. Now, what he's saying, though, is, you know, you keep them longer, this and that. No, 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 that's not how often we get paid. We get these DRGs, these flat fees you get paid the most when you admit someone and discharge them right away. (laughs) Like that's the highest code you can pretty much charge. But there's vagaries and it depends on your insurance and all that. So he's not wrong to question financial incentives. I think that's important. But he is wrong to say something like this, like uh, natural immunity. So if you've been infected before and then you get vaccinated, you are in big trouble. You're gonna have all these complications. So where is he getting this? And is there any truth to this?
0: No, not. None. I mean, it could, you'd think the opposite would be true. I mean, if you were vaccinated, now you have antibodies, which would ameliorate any of the effects that would be caused by the vaccine, because usually those effects occur within, you know, a few weeks of getting the dose, because that's when the protein's made, you're making an antibody response, that, that's when you would see that. So if anything, it would be ameliorating. I mean, if you, so as for example, um, when Jonas saw, wanted to test his polio vaccine, the first group of people he tested it in were children who had already been infected because he figured this was sort of slowly walk, work back on then sort of the safety tree to eventually give you give it to zero negative children, children who hadn't been exposed to the virus because now you're gonna see whether or not there was any problem. So the safest group was the group who had already been infected first.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, now, the only question I would have on that is, let's say you were naturally infected and then you get a dose of vaccine. That almost acts as your second dose, and you're a young person like 20, and you get moderna, and you're a little higher risk for myocarditis. I mean, is that true? Because myocarditis seems to be an immune response after that, predominantly after the second dose. I and mean, what your thoughts on that?
0: I think that's right. I I think that tells you it's an immune mediated phenomenon. The fact that it was a second dose phenomenon. There are a number of studies that have come out looking at people who after natural infection got a dose of mRNA containing vaccine to show that you got a boosted response and to make the case reasonably that you don't need a second dose that, you know, then this was I remember something, um, I w- had wished the CDC had come out with a recommendation on this because there were a number of studies showing that that you didn't really need that second dose because you just essentially had it by getting the first dose in somebody who had already been naturally infected. Um, yeah. it's, it's the first time ever where natural infection didn't count. And I, I think it's because we were learning about this virus and we weren't sure, and it was probably bureaucratic to some extent, had you prove natural infection. Um, so I understand that I understand and hesitancy, but as we got more and more information, I guess I wish the CDC had been more more directive, more prescriptive in terms of how that first dose could count. But I think it became more how do you make that a, a doable thing, you know, mm. make it easy.
1: I guess in retrospect, I just wonder. I know the transmission is lessened by vaccination, so there's a community benefit, but it's not as much as we might hope. Uh, like ideally, right? And so the question is, would we, could we let that slide? Because these kids who get, let's say they get a single dose and they told everyone that, well, I was already infected. So they just got one dose. Are we creating a public health hazard by having a kid with one dose of vaccine, You know, versus the public health hazard of destroying trust and creating psychological reactants and so on? That, that's what I struggle with, but I'm curious your thoughts.
0: Yeah, you know, the only thing I would say is that, that you know, what we know about these two dose vaccines for whether Pfizer or Moderna is that you do get high frequencies of memory B and T cells. The question is, is that also true after one dose? And and I I suspect it might not be true. So I think there what worried me when this vaccine first rolled out, I remember there were people like Stan Placken, who was my former boss or Ashish Jha, who were on television saying Let's just get as many one dose out there as possible and then we'll get around to the second dose when we can what worried me about that was that i thought that people would there would be some people if not many people who would think okay so it's a one dose vaccine i don't need that second dose where i think they probably do need that second dose to get those high frequencies of memory b and t cells to protect you against serious disease for a longer period of time and you may be protected for years with this this given the sort of frequencies of memory b and t cells we're seeing we'll see We'll see whether or not this really does act like a live attenuated viral vaccine and not an inactivated viral vaccine. We'll see over time. But for right now, all the data are that, that it does. I've, I've always wor- was worried about that single dose recommendation initially.
1: Mm-hmm. I get it, yeah. And well, so back back to kids, like in terms of general you know, public health, so you you take care of sick kids at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So you see kids with, with COVID in the hospital. What's your take on mandating the vaccine for kids five to 11, given the best data we have? Should it be mandated? Should it be voluntary? Is it helpful? Why should people do
0: it? Yeah, I mean, well, in a better world, we would need mandates in a better world, a world dominated by logic and reason, a world in which we do not live. Um, you know, that people <laughs> would look at the data and they would say, this is great. I mean, here here we have now, so about about 20% of five to 10 year olds have been vaccinated fully. So you figure that's 28 million people. Um so 10% would be 2.8. So about five about 5 to 6 million children have been vaccinated. So and the CDC just came out with a report looking at serious side effects in I think the first it's about eight million. So eight million, eight million children, just a CDC report. Was there any myocarditis? No. In that, at least in the eight million. So and you felt better because you knew that this was a problem in the 16 to 17 year old. It could be as frequent as one in 5,000, one in seventy, five hundred, depending on sort of who you were looking, whether it was US or Israeli data. But the 12 to 15 year old appeared to be less. So that was reassuring. And then the five to 11 year old, you know, is getting a lesser dose, It's getting, you know, only 10 micrograms, not 30 micrograms like the 12 to 15 year old got. So that was reassuring. And all the early data is that that it's less. Um, I mean, we mandate vaccines for children coming into school. Is is this does this vaccine count as one of those? Uh, You know, um, this virus has killed um, about the, when they, we were presented these, we, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, were presented these data on October 26th. At that time, about 100 children 5 to 11, 11 years of age had died um, there. At that time, there were about 8,300 hospitalizations, a third of which ended were in the ICU, and a third of those kids who were hospitalized had no comorbidities. So can this affect the otherwise healthy 5 to 11 year old? Yes. Can it cause a serious disease in the otherwise healthy 5 to 11 year old? Yes. Can it be fatal? Yes. Um, and that is the age of Miss C. I mean, that is the age range of Miss C. And it'll be interesting to see whether Omicron is less likely to cause Miss C because that may be true. But Omicron's not the last variant. And and I, I guess to me, the, the strongest argument for vaccinating children is they grow up and this virus is going to be out there for a long time. And if we, we've induced long-term memory, um, you know, with, with this with this vaccine, we are serving them well as they get older, because we are going to need to have a highly... Uh, Im- immune population, either from natural infection or immunization, I think for years, if not decades. I mean, we still vaccinate against polio in this country. We haven't had polio in this country since the 70s. We do it because polio still exists in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Although it's interesting, when you know, with the Afghanistan um, with all the, we had a lot of immigrants and, uh, and emigres coming into our hospital from Afghanistan children who were sort of initially maintained like in, in tents and then they were brought into our hospital. It was interesting because, because polio was an issue. I mean, were some of these children excreting, excreting polio asymptomatically? Because remember, only uh, one of every 200 people who are infected with polio will have paralysis. It was interesting to see the looks on the, the residents' faces when that was brought up, right? But these kids, some of these kids may be shedding polio virus asymptomatically. This was something they had never considered or thought about, you know, this because they didn't grow up with this. That, I mean, that I
1: is, That's really fascinating because if you, you just said something too, one in 200 kids with polio get paralysis. Right. So in a way, it, it's a very similar kind of scenario where a very small percentage of people actually get severely ill. Um, that's exactly right. Wow. Yeah, you know, so that, that kind of perspective is actually very helpful. Um, Have you heard about this army super vaccine they're developing or is this uh, some apocryphal uh, information
0: here? (laughs) No, it's not apocryphal. It's that of Walter Reed. So it, what they do is they take ferritin and then it is, it is, uh, it, it's in a structure that looks like a soccer ball. And then you can take these uh, different SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins and put them all on the outside of that soccer ball. So you can, in theory, have a variety of different SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins. Um, this, this, so, so the, this is the, the kind of the universal coronavirus vaccine people talk about. That's possible. I'm not sure we need it yet. Uh, you know, I'm not sure we need, protection broader than we already have. What I worry about, and I'm sure what what people like Dr. Walensky and Dr. Fauci worry about, would be a virus that is a variant strain that is resistant to protection against serious illness. Because then you're not talking, that's not a booster dose anymore. That's just going back to square one again and giving that as a whatever, two or three dose vaccine starting from the beginning again. And hopefully hopefully that doesn't happen but you know the virus is continuing to mutate omicron probably came from uh, what sounds like someone who had hiv who wasn't being treated in whom the virus was replicating and replicating and replicating and the person was making antibodies but at low level which is really the way that you make escape mutants in a laboratory just just keep providing low levels of antibodies and watch this virus continue to escape and that's what happened we've gone from like whatever eight or so critical mutations with delta to like 30 I mean, this is this is flu territory. When you see that level of of uh, drift, it but, was but, really...
1: but By the way, so when you're yeah, that approach of making escape mutants in the lab, is that considered gain of function research? Is that the same sort of thing?
0: Yeah, you could you could argue that. Well,
1: um, <laughs> now as as someone who's worked with viruses, you know, trying to develop rotavirus vaccine and and successfully doing so. If, if say someone like Marty McCary has said, hey, we need a full ban on all gain of function research, can we say that now? Is, is, that, is that incompatible with doing good science?
0: Well, so, I mean, how do, how do we make the rotavirus vaccine? We made the rotavirus vaccine by taking uh, essentially an a, what we consider to be an avirulent strain for, um, for children. I mean, well, take a step back. Rotoviruses infect all mammalian species and some avian species, um, but species barriers are high. So calf rotaviruses cause disease in calves, but not babies, and baby rotaviruses cause disease in humans, but not in calves. So species barriers are high. So you take a calf rotavirus, and then you genetically alter it to put in human genes that are critical for inducing protective immunity, but not critical for creating virulence. So you need to make sure you define those genes. What are the genes that determine virulence? What human genes determine virulence, and make sure you don't add those. So that's what we did. I mean, that was I just described ten years worth of work in about twenty-five <laughs> seconds, which is depressing. But so that's what we did. And and so um, is that gain of function? Uh, we thought it was loss of function research, but you wonder, you know, well, how that gets defined.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because you'd have to be very careful about how you define it. Maybe gain of virulence is what you'd want to avoid. Um, but even then, so anything else, Paul, we're at the over the hour mark here and I wanna respect your time and sanity because you basically talk all day, every day about this stuff. You're one of the few sort of voices that's been actually balanced across the spectrum and you've taken some stances that some disagree with and others, you've never been a ideologue about any of this and that's why I think a lot of people, including myself admire and trust you. Anything else you wanna let
0: us know that's very important? No, I think we're getting there. I do. I, I think that that um, as we move into the, I mean, that I think the warm weather is an enemy of this virus. I think as, as we move into the warmer months, it, just like it last year. I mean, you look at the the sort of number of cases and hospitalization deaths last June, July. I mean, they were down. I think that'll be true now too. And what's interesting, we are at about ninety percent population immunity. That's that's getting there. Um, uh, but the virus is really good at finding people who are susceptible. So. Get vaccinated people who are listening to Z dog please get vaccinated to make Z dogs and my life easier because you know when your hospital seeing a lot of patients it's harder to take care of all the other patients too that, at the same time
1: so, That's that's great yeah. advice and one one last thing on relating to that when hospitals are overwhelmed it's it's not so people make this argument well they're getting admitted to the hospital with covid instead of of covid and therefore that doesn't matter here's why it matters you cannot place a patient with COVID, with a positive COVID test in a nursing home. You cannot get them into a psychiatric facility. You can't, because they need special equipment, special beds, special isolation, PPE, et cetera. It throws the hospital logistics chain into a disaster that then affects everything else the hospital does, including the real sick COVID patients, whether they're residual Delta or Omicron, we don't know, but it then affects your appendicitis or your cancer surgery or something like that that's one community sort of measure of like why first of all we should vaccinate in many especially high risk people because then they're not going to end up needing an icu bed but also we really do have to question okay if you have been vaccinated and you do test positive and you don't have symptoms you know what does that mean how do we handle you is there a better way to do it you know so i don't have the answer to that paul unless you do no so in that in that case just get vaccinated if you can if you've been naturally infected respect. It's kind of nice to have a vaccine too, just in case, because it's a little variable, but hey, we get it. Let's love each other, don't you think, instead of being so
0: polarized?
1: I don't know. I don't know, Paul. Uh,
0: It's the way we love each other. I mean, I I think that's true. I think it's how we love each other, is to show respect for, you know, the other person. I I, I just, I mean, if you don't, want to get tetanus vaccine that only affects you and no one's going to get tetanus from you, but this, this how do you think people get it? They get it from other people. And mm. so- ah, that's beautiful. Get
1: All right. Uh, Paul, All right. I love you, brother. Um, okay. Thank you so yes. much. Guys, share the show, do the usual stuff, and we are out. Peace.